God, thank you for this day that you've given us. Thank you that your mercy is more, God. That we experience that in our life, that our sins do not disqualify us from you. And God, we see that when the sun raises up and when we lay our head down on the pillow, we realize your mercy is more. And we need your mercy now. That you would send forth your Holy Spirit among us. That Holy Spirit, you would open our minds, open our hearts to receive this, your word. And God... We pray, would you impress upon our hearts this great truth of justification that we're again going to dive into this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we are in our sixth installment in the book of Romans, and if you've been joining us, Paul has been unpacking these great truths in the book of Romans, what we call basic Christianity. Paul's writing this letter about A.D. 57, which is you know, about 27 years after Jesus died or so. And what Paul is trying to do, at least up to this point, is he's trying to really get us to focus in on two great things. And we've compared these to contact lenses, okay? If you wear contact lenses, you need both functioning clearly in order for them to work properly. If only one's working, it just doesn't work, right? So Paul has unpacked these two lenses that he wants us to see with crystal clarity, and they're are the two themes, the first being bad news. Paul really showed us this bad news beginning in Romans chapter 1 all the way up until Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And this bad news can be summarized. It's in this legal term, this term that he got from the law courts. It's the word condemnation. The word condemnation, according to the Bible, says that all humankind is guilty and under God's judgment because of sin. We all stand condemned in God's courtroom because of the sin that we've committed. That's all of us, and that's everybody in the Bible as well. And remember, Paul, last week, as we were looking in Romans chapter 3, had kind of this perfect summary statement for it. He said, For there is no distinction. This is Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. He said, For there is no distinction. For all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. That is to say that nobody can or has or will on the basis of their own efforts, the basis of their own works, be approved and righteous before God. Everybody falls short of the praise of God, the glory of God. So Paul's showing us that unless we understand this reality of our condemnation before God, this lens of the bad news, then we're never going to understand God rightly, and we're always going to be missing something that's true about ourselves. Uh, Hobart Maurer, he was the, Ameri uh, the president of the American Psychological Association in the mid-20th century. In 1960, he wrote this essay where he said, quote, For several decades, we psychologists looked upon the whole matter of sin and moral accountability as a great problem and celebrated our liberation from it as earth-shattering. But at length, we have discovered that to be free from the idea of sin is to present a danger of also becoming lost. He continued in saying, in becoming amoral, ethically neutral, and free from the idea of sin, we've cut the very roots of our being out from under us and lost our deepest sense of selfhood and identity. He says, we're like neurotics, and we're left asking, who am I? What is my deepest destiny? And what does living really mean? See, that's a secular atheist psychologist 
saying kind of the same thing that Paul says, that when we want to erase this idea of condemnation from our consciousness, then we actually lose something profound that's true about ourselves, and then we don't really have any bearing of understanding ourselves, and we don't have a basis on which to seek a solution. And so, with this idea of the bad news, this lens of condemnation, Paul last week transitioned to focus clearly on what he calls the good news, the second lens. And again, he summarizes the good news with another legal term. It's the term justification. It's the term that we just referred to and rehearsed earlier in the service during the confession of sin. And justification is this staggering claim of the Bible that through faith in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, we can be forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future, and we can be made righteous in God's sight. Not because of anything that we've done, but by virtue of our faith in Jesus. And by the way, that's not how many people think of the cross. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, he was the Indian activist who worked to free India from the tyranny of Britain. We understand the tyranny of Britain here in the United States as well. He said, I could accept Jesus as a martyr, an embodiment of sacrifice and a divine teacher. His death on the cross was a great example to the world. But that there was anything like a mysterious or miraculous virtue in it, my heart just cannot accept. See what Gandhi was saying is that the cross is a great example, right? And an example is something that we are to emulate, something that we're to live out. But while that's true, Paul says something much more staggering. He says that the cross is much more than an example to follow, but it was something that accomplished our justification, which is to be embraced and received, it's something that is to be rested in and trusted in, much more so than an example to follow. Jesus on the cross accomplished our forgiveness and gave us his righteousness. I think it is summarized well in a, a hymn that I've pleaded with Aaron that we could sing, but he says we can't. So if you like this hymn as well, you can blame him and talk to him after the service. But it's the hymn, Man of Sorrows. It says this, Man of Sorrows, talking about the cross. On the cross, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Jesus on the cross stood condemned in our place, and by his blood we are freely forgiven. What a Savior. Hallelujah. It's by faith in that alone that saves. Now, Paul here in chapter 4, as we look at our text, Paul here in chapter 4 continues on this theme of justification to unpack it for us, and he focuses in on a figure, Abraham. Chapter 4, verse 1. He asks this question, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Now, Abraham's kind of this perfect test case for Paul because Abraham... First off, he was a prominent Old Testament figure. If you know, he comes in the book of Genesis. And in Genesis, there are just a number of main actors. The first being Adam, who by his sin plunged the world into darkness. And then there's Noah, who's an illustration of putting faith in God. And by virtue of that faith, we escape the judgment and the condemnation that awaits the world. But then Abraham comes. And he's this man of promise. So we see this light in Abraham amidst the backdrop of a very dark book. And Dwayne's been unpacking that for us recently. 
But the reason that Paul wants to focus in on Abraham here, I think, is because Abraham is ancient. Okay, And that's because in the ancient Roman world and in Jewish culture, it's not exactly like our culture today because in our culture today, right, we love things that are new. We love things that are innovative. Neil Postman, he once wrote, he's a cultural critic and a writer, he said, a surefire way to make something unpopular in America is to call it old. I think that's true, right? Because we love things that are innovative. We love things that are cutting edge and fresh and novel. That's why nobody likes original Lay's potato chips, by the way. Yeah, that wasn't that funny. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but ponder that for a moment, right? When it comes to like the deep and core things of life, do you really want stuff that's new and innovative or do you want stuff that's tried and true? So if you're going in for a heart surgery, do you want somebody giving you, you know, new and experimental practices or when you're going and investing money, do you want a guy named Richie who's fresh out of undergrad, who's going to handle your 401k and your Roth IRA? No, you want Bernard to handle your money, right? <laughs> Nobody under the age of 50 is named Bernard, by the way. And same thing with your cardiologist. You want Nancy or Rose or Susan, one who's had experience in the field. And that's how ancient Rome, that's how Jews thought about religion. They thought what's tried what's tested. The old paths are what we need to follow. And so Paul mentions Abraham to de demonstrate here, justification by faith in Jesus is not something new, but rather it's something historically rooted in scripture, in history. And it's for that reason that justification by faith in Jesus is plan A. It's always been God's plan and there is no plan B. So now, Paul transitions and he makes this claim right here in this passage that God's promises are ancient and Abraham is the test case that justification has always been by faith alone. We're going to see two things in this passage. First, in verses 1 through 8, we're going to see that Paul wants to prove in Abraham's life justification is by faith, not by works. That's verses 1 through 8. And then secondly, that justification is by faith, not by signs. And that's specifically the sign of circumcision. And we'll unpack that in verses 9 through 12. So let's begin. Justification is by faith, not by works. And Paul does this by pointing out kind of this absurdity, right, in thinking that Abraham or any of us could be justified on the basis of works. So beginning in verse 1, he says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So what Paul is saying here is, if Abraham was justified by, by works, then he could stand before God and he could boast about his accomplishments, right? He could stand before God and he could say, God, did you read in the Bible? Remember, I'm in the Bible, by the way, Abraham. And how I left my homeland to follow you in Genesis chapter 12, how great was that? And then remember when you gave me the promised son that you had promised and I was willing to sacrifice him? 
in obedience to you, God? Do you remember that? God, did you see how faithful and obedient I was? God, let me remind you of all the good things that I've done. And that might sound kind of absurd to our ears, but you have to understand, during Paul's time, that was actually the reason that people thought Abraham was justified, that he was right with God. In fact, there's this writing called the Jubilees. This was written in 150 B.C. or so by a group of Pharisaical scribes. It's kind of like a commentary on Genesis. The Jubilees write, quote, For Abraham was perfect in all of his deeds with the Lord, and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. And then the book of Maccabees it adds to this. book of Maccabees is another extra-biblical writing. It says, no need, Abraham had no need to repent because he did not sin. So see, that was the thought. That Abraham did good things, accomplished righteousness, and therefore God said he was righteous on that basis. But Paul points out, think of the absurdity of thinking that Abraham could really be justified by his works and his own righteousness. In verse 2, he says, For if Abraham was justified by works, sure he has something to boast about, but not before God. See, before everybody else, the culture around him, maybe the people around him, maybe his family around him, sure, in comparison to those people, Abraham could boast. Abraham could be more righteous than other people, but he finds himself in the same position as every other person when it comes to righteousness before God, and we're no different. None of us can boast in God's sight because the distance of our righteousness and his righteousness is too vast. I like the way that uh, Hunley Mule, Hunley Mule was a pastor in the Church of England. He was an Anglican. He said, quote, the prostitute, the liar, the murderer, all fall short of the works necessary to receive God's approval. But so do you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a coal mine and you stand at the pinnacle of a mountain. But neither of us are able to touch the stars. See, none of us can come close to the righteousness required to win the approval, the praise, the glory of God any more than any of us can go to the highest mountain there is and touch the stars. Maybe when we look around like Abraham and compared to other people, we think we're good and decent people, but we all fall short. Now, I, I grew up playing baseball, and I was a pretty decent baseball player. I wasn't the best by any means. I played in college. I did some good things, had some nice hits. But growing up, my favorite player was Derek Jeter. He was the captain of the New York Yankees. He won Rookie of the Year, his first year. He went to 14 All-Star games. He had five gold gloves, which means he was the best shortstop for a particular year over all other shortstops defensively. He won five Silver Slugger awards, which means he was the best hitter as a shortstop over all other people in the major leagues. He won five World Series. He was one-time World Series MVP. He is one of only a handful of people that had 3,000 hits in his career, and in the year 2020, he was elected to the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. I think it's pretty safe to say Derek Jeter was the best shortstop to ever play baseball. And now, imagine his uh, Hall of Fame acceptance, acceptance speech is put off because it's 2020. But imagine he's going up to give this acceptance speech, and I follow up right behind him, and I push him aside, and I say, all right, let me tell you about a home run I hit against Northwestern College to win the game in college. <laughs> now, by the way, you can come and ask me that story. It's pretty sweet. But <laughs> imagine what Derek Jeter's thinking over here. He's, he would probably be like, is this guy serious? Did he seriously just do this? Right? I'm Derek Jeter. 
And now me and DJ are close. By the way, I call him DJ. Um, I, can, I can do that. But he would probably humor me because he's a nice guy. But in reality, he'd be thinking, who is this guy? The record of Daniel Nealon does not come close to comparison to the record of Derek Jeter. The same thing, same thing is true with Abraham. Sure, he can boast before other men, but think how absurd it is that he could boast before God. That's why John Stott put it so brilliantly. He said, to suppose that the unrighteous can establish their own righteousness before God is to think the unthinkable. It's not even that it's wrong to think that. It's that it doesn't even rise to the level of coherence to be wrong. It's just so unthinkable that we think we could boast before God. And how Abraham uh, demonstrates this and how Paul proves it is he points back to Genesis to prove his point. And in verse 3, quoting a passage from Genesis, he says, well, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was credited freely to Abraham's record. That word counted is an accounting term, right? And it means to receive something which does not rightfully belong to you. So you think of it this way. In, in college, I would call up my dad, and I had a credit card that had some sufficient funds in it, and I would drain that thing pretty quickly. And I would call my dad, and I'd say, hey, dad, I'm looking at a statement, and it shows that I'm in the red. Can you please fund and credit some money to my account? And my dad, as the gracious dad that he was, said, no. Go get a job. No, he didn't really say that. He was a really nice dad, and he would credit my account. He would put something in there which didn't belong to me. What Paul is saying is that the perfect righteousness that God requires cannot be earned and achieved by our own work, but rather the perfect righteousness God requires is the righteousness he himself gives. It's a righteousness that he himself earned through the perfect life of Jesus Christ, and it's freely credited to the account of any person who rests and embraces the cross of Jesus. That's what happened to Abraham. He was credited a righteousness that was not him. It was given freely and counted to his account. Now, for those of you who, who do think, hey, I am basically and generally a good person, and on the basis of that, God is going to invite me into heaven once I die. Can I ask you, how good really do you think good enough is? How good is good enough? See, what we often think is, well, God's going to judge me on the standard of my peers, those who are to the right of me and those who are to the left of me. But Paul's making claim, no, Nobody can receive the glory of God and boast in his presence. Therefore, the righteousness required for his presence has to be a righteousness he provides on his own. And by the way, this is where this whole idea of that I can be good enough for God kind of breaks down. It's in verse 4 where Paul says explicitly, there is a difference, a world of difference between faith and work, between righteousness earned and righteousness received. Verse 4 Paul says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. See, this is basic accounting for Paul. He says, this is how it works, right? When you work eight hours a day for 40 hours a week for two weeks, then you receive a direct deposit from your employer, don't you? Right? Because that's a work. You put in work, it was a service, and you receive a wage. It's your due. You earn something. And your employer is actually indebted to you. You provide the work, you provide the labor, and you receive your due. It's a wage. 
But according to Paul, the way a person receives God's righteousness is fundamentally different. God's righteousness is not earned as a wage for our work. Rather, it is approval given by God as a gift to be received by faith. That's how a person's made righteous. It's credited to them apart from anything that they've done. Now, this is, by the way, one of the most foundational debates in church history. If you're familiar with what's known as the Protestant Reformation in the 15th, 16th, 17th century, uh, and if you don't know what that is, I'm a nerd, so I'm just going to summarize it for you, okay? Here's what happened. The Roman Catholic Church had taught that it wasn't by crediting righteousness to us received by faith, but instead the way a person was righteous is that God would infuse righteousness into a person and when you think of that word infuse, right, think of a turkey baster at Thanksgiving that you infuse something into your turkey. That's what would happen. God would infuse his righteousness, and it acted like a spiritual B12 shot so that you could do good works, so that at the end of your life, you could stand before God, present him those good works, and he would call them righteous. But there's a couple problems wrong with that understanding of justification. First off, Paul uses the accounting term, right? Not the Thanksgiving baster term. He doesn't use infuse. He says counted. God counts it to his righteousness. But the second problem with it is, notice, when was Abraham justified? It was the second that he believed in the promise of God. Which means Abraham was justified and righteous in God's sight the second that he believed. Not at the end of, the life, of his life when he had accumulated a good record. And this is good news, by the way, because if you believe in Jesus this morning, then you can have the comfort of knowing you are more righteous in God's sight now than you ever will be. The righteousness that you have now in Jesus cannot be added to or taken away from. That's how forgiven you are. That's how righteous you are in God's sight. Works play no role in our justification. The second we try and bring works to God, by the way, it's kind of like in Seinfeld when they would go to the soup Nazi and they would try and pay or they'd do something wrong and the soup Nazi would say, no soup for you. Right? That's, that's what it's like bringing our works before God. God says, no soup for you. Right? Works play no role in our justification. And you might have the question then, well, well then why doesn't God just justify everybody then? Why doesn't God save everyone? If it's a free gift of God apart from anything that we do, why doesn't he do that for everyone? Isn't that unfair? And I have to honestly say that is a sincere question. And as a person who has friends and family members and loved ones that don't believe in Jesus, I personally agonize over that question myself. And the only honest answer I can say to that is I don't know. I don't know why God would choose somebody like me over anybody else because I realize I don't deserve it. But one thing I do know is that underneath that question of whether or not God is fair is an assumption that we all make. See, we think God is unfair because he doesn't give everyone grace. And when we say that, we're assuming that because God gave grace to some then he owes grace to all. Now, some of you might be familiar with R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul was a professor, and R.C. Sproul said that one of his very first classes that he taught, it was an introduction to theology, and it was for undergrad students, a lot of freshmen, and they would come into the class, and he reminded them, there are three papers due in this course. 
One before fall break, one before Thanksgiving break, and one before Christmas break. This is the hard deadline. If it's late, you will receive a zero. Well, the first fall break comes around, first papers due. About 25% of the class doesn't turn in the paper, and they go and they knock on R.C. Sproul's door and they say, please, we are new to school, we're new to college, we're trying to balance this work-life dilemma that happens here, and we just didn't finish the paper. Please show mercy on us. Please have grace to us. And he said, okay, I will, but only this once. So then the second semester comes, or sorry, the second paper comes due right before Thanksgiving break, and about 35% of the class doesn't have their paper completed on time. So they come knocking on Dr. Sproul's door and they say, hey, Dr. Sproul, please have mercy on us. Thanksgiving was coming up, we were really excited. And he says, okay, but this is the last time that I'm gonna do this. I'll show you mercy, I'll show you grace. But if you do not turn your other paper in on time, you will receive a zero. And so here comes Christmas break, final paper due. He says a handful of people didn't turn in their paper and they came knocking on his door trying to ask for an extension. And he said, guys, I can't. I'm giving you an F. I'm giving you a zero. And now, Dr. Sproul was fully in his right to fail those students. He did not owe them grace. And just because he gave grace to some doesn't mean that he owes grace to all. It's a free gift that he gives out as he chooses. And the same thing is true based on God, as we see in Abraham. Grace, by definition, means unmerited favor, by the way. Freely given to those who do not deserve it, because nobody deserves it, myself included. That's why I find the words of Victor Hugo. When we look into our hearts, Victor Hugo wrote this. Victor Hugo is the prolific French novelist. He wrote, almost all our desires, when examined, contain something too shameful to reveal. I realize that. I'm sure many of you realize that, that when we really examine our intentions, our motives, even our best works, we realize that they're polluted by something not virtuous. The prophet Jeremiah, who was a prophet in the Old Testament, he said something very similar. He said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, when we hear things like that, that our hearts are sick, that our hearts are corrupt, our desires are twisted, we should think of Maybe two things. The first thing we should think of is, well, maybe we should second-guess Disney when they tell us to follow our heart, right? That'd be one. Probably shouldn't believe that. But then the second thing is, we should realize just how much we do not deserve anything, much less the grace of God in Jesus. And so Paul adds to his argument here by adding in another Old Testament figure. He adds in Abraham, or sorry, he adds in David and accompanied with Abraham. Verse 6, he says, This was shown in David, too, who wrote, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. See, the one who is truly happy, the one who is truly approved by God and truly blessed, is the one who recognizes they need their sins forgiven. They need their sins forgiven covered and they need a God who will not count their sins to them but instead count something they do not deserve namely the righteousness of Jesus it says I think of when it uses that word covered right I think of my kids like they'll draw these pictures and you know they're so sweet right they'll draw these pictures and they'll come to me and they're like daddy daddy it's an alligator I'll say that's not an alligator no those are lines those are lines (laughs) 
and they're shamed and they'll go, they'll start crying and they'll go and they'll start cutting out pictures of alligators and pasting it over them. And like, is this the alligator you want? I don't really do that, by the way. <laughs> but that's the idea, right? We have this mess of a record that we've accumulated and God covers it with a perfect righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, so that when he looks at us, he doesn't see the mess. He sees his son, Jesus. Justification can be received in no other way because on the cross, Jesus did more than a great example. He actually accomplished it. He actually accomplished forgiveness. He actually accomplished the covering of our sins and the imputation, the crediting of righteousness to our account. So God doesn't see the mess. Our justification is apart from works. And another aspect of justification is illustrated in Abraham as well, that justification is by faith, not by signs. Justification is by faith, not by signs. You probably noticed this throughout the, Paul's letter to the Romans, that he engages in what's known in letter writing as a diatribe. A diatribe is simply when you pretend like you're speaking to somebody that asks you a question and then you answer the question. So Paul brings up this fake discussion partner in verses 9 and 10. And the person raises their hand. They say, is this blessing then only for the circumcised? He's talking about ethnic Jews. Only the Jewish people were thought to be the covenant people of God, the special people in God's sight. So they're asking, is this blessing only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? That means those people out there, the Gentiles. What does Paul say? We say that faith is counted to Abraham as righteousness. So they respond, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? Paul makes it clear, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. In other words, when Abraham was a Gentile, when Abraham was not yet Jewish, when Abraham had not yet been circumcised, he had faith in Jesus and the promised Jesus to come, and it was on the basis of that that he received righteousness. So he's telling his Jewish audience, it was not before he was circumcised, it was after. And here's why this is important, by the way, because in the year 49 AD, this was a serious debate going on in churches. This was a serious debate, especially in Rome. The emperor Claudius, who was the emperor of Rome during the time, had actually expelled Jews from Rome because there was such conflict in the churches about these kinds of issues. And it had this threat of dividing Rome politically and socially. And the reason we see, or sorry, we see in the New Testament this debate raging on between this, this, this faction that's saying you have to be circumcised in order to be right before God. People were coming in after Paul would go to these different churches and they would come and they'd say, hey, listen, what Paul said was true. You have to have faith in Jesus, but you left something out. You also need something extra. You need to be circumcised as well. See, it's in the Bible. Even Abraham was circumcised. So in order to be justified, you also have to be circumcised. You have to become an ethnic Jew. So see, it was Jesus plus circumcision equals justification. That's how a person is really saved. That's what they would say. And today we have these as well, right? We, we say faith in Jesus, but you also need to abstain from alcohol. Or faith in Jesus and you need good church attendance. Or faith in Jesus and you need to donate X amount of money to the church. Faith in Jesus, but you also need to refrain from watching those kind of movies. You know, ones that are rated MA or those that are rated R. Or those, if you're under 13, rated PG-13. And now to be sure, most of these things that I just listed even are good things to do. Some of them 
are very wise things to do. And one of them, by the way, is actually commanded as well. But the second that you add a command of God or something wise that God has given you as a requirement in addition to faith in order to be justified, you've lost the good news. You've lost the good news. You've actually taken the lens of the good news that you are justified by faith alone and you've taken it out, muddied it up, and made it bad news. Because here's the thing, everything that you add in addition to Jesus and faith in him alone, you'll always fail at, even the easiest thing. Like you say, it's faith in Jesus plus not thinking about elephants. Well, then I say, don't think about elephants. And what do you think about? What are you thinking about right now? You're thinking about elephants, aren't you? You are, because it's impossible. Any other condition than the faith that God gives us is, any, is, is a condition that is destined for failure. Jesus plus circumcision equals justification. Paul says, no, 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 no. And he says, when was Abraham justified? It was before he was circumcised. It was before he did anything pleasing in God's sight. When did God show him grace? It was not after, but it was before he was circumcised. Faith in Jesus plus nothing equals justification. That's Paul's mantra. Faith in Jesus plus anything is nothing. You've lost it. And it's bad news. And in fact, in verse 11, Paul begins to give us an understanding of even what circumcision was for, this sign. He said he received, that's Abraham, the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Charles Hodge, the Princeton theologian, he lived during the 20th century. He said, what answers well as a sign is a miserable substitute for the thing signified. Let me say that again. What answers well as a sign is a miserable substitute for the thing signified. For the Jewish audience in Paul's day, circumcision was a good sign of a person who was righteous by faith. Today, if you're a church member, then attendance at church and baptism and communion and giving money, these are all good signs that you're justified by faith. But these are signs. They are not the real thing. They are not additions to or replacements for the real thing because the real thing, Jesus and his righteousness, is the only thing that can justify a person. The second you confuse the two, you lose the good news. And the reality is, is this is why. Because God loves, God loves people who do not go to church. God loves people who drink too much alcohol. God loves people who are miserly with their money. God loves the adulterer, the money launderer, the pornographer, the liar, and the prostitute. He loves me. He loves you. And he justifies me, you, and everyone else only by the grace through faith in Jesus alone. It's his grace that heals, his grace that gives us faith, and it's his grace that'll carry us from beginning to end. It's his grace that takes the prostitute and clothes her in a righteousness that she can never earn so that she could be brilliant and beautiful before God. That is a great encouragement.
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a pastor, he said that he was explaining this very reality with one of his best friends, and he labored over one of his good friends telling him about this. And he said, after I explained the way of Christ to him, I said, now are you ready to say that you're a Christian? He said he hesitated. And Jones replied, he said, what's the matter? Why are you hesitating? And he said, as many as often said, my friend replied to me, I don't feel like I'm good enough yet. Jones said, it is at once that I realized that I was wasting my breath. He was still thinking in terms of himself instead of looking outside himself to Jesus. Our faith looks outside of ourselves to a righteousness that we cannot earn by faith, even by the most noble sign of that faith. It's by faith and faith alone. That's the purpose, according to Paul, of circumcision. In verse 11, to close out this section, he says, Quote, the purpose was to make Abraham the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. The purpose was to make Abraham not the forefather of the Jews according to the flesh, but to make him the father of Jew and Gentile and all who need forgiveness of sins and could receive it by putting out their hand and receiving it by faith alone. It was to make Abraham the father of all who believe, the Jew, the Gentile, the circumcised, the uncircumcised, the saint, and the sinner. Jesus plus nothing equals justification for all who believe, including the greatest sinner in this room this morning. I want to conclude with a story from uh, one of my mentors. His name was Dr. Lim. He was a professor at Vanderbilt. Every Tuesday during the fall semester, he would take a group of Vanderbilt undergrads, about nine or ten of them, and he would actually teach a course at Riverbend Maximum Security Prison there in Nashville, Tennessee. And he would gather a group of these nine or ten students. He'd put them together with nine or ten death row inmates, some of them. Murderers, rapists, incestuous people who had been locked up full life terms. And he would gather them in these groups, and they were reading through the book of Genesis, reading a story like the story of Abraham. And after reading the stories, they would gather together, Vanderbilt student, prisoner, Vanderbilt student, prisoner. And after they would read the story, Dr. Lim would look at him and say, what picture of God do you see in this story? And one of the prisoners raised his hand, slightly trembling, and he said, I see the God of the unrighteous, the God of the losers. Anybody else here a loser? the God of the losers. You still might disagree with this idea. You might say, I can never accept that. A God who justifies the double homicide prisoner as well as the double honor student. But friends, you realize if you disagree with that, then you contradict the God of grace. You contradict the God of Genesis, the God of the Bible, who says he credited a righteousness we can never earn. You contradict the God of Paul who says it's unthinkable and absurd to think that we can glorify before God. You contradict the God of David who said the one who's truly happy and blessed is the one who comes to God with no presuppositions that they are good enough. And you contradict the God of the unrighteous, the God of the losers. Friends, this is the God who saves. And we will embrace that by faith alone or we will never embrace it. Because as Paul says, Romans 4 verse 5, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted 
as righteousness. Friends, this is plan A. There is no other plan B. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that your grace is abounding. It is magnificent. It is more than we could ever expect. And it's a grace for all people who need it. And God, we pray that through this passage that we heard, you would remind us that this has always been your plan and it will always be your plan. And God, I pray that you would work in us faith to receive this righteousness that you give apart from anything that we do. God, we thank you for this doctrine of justification. We pray that it would be on our lips and on our hearts and on our minds as we sing praise to you and as we seek to glorify you and live in light of your grace because we know it's by grace we've been saved and by grace we'll continue in grace that'll bring us home. God, thank you for this amazing grace. And we pray as we sing about your son Jesus now and how he accomplished our salvation, our justification on the cross, that you would help us sing these words in ways that are pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.